This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And my own mother, I was one of five kids, her call to us all was, there's no such thing as can't. You just ignore the naysayers because they will always be there. Don't let them affect you. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, then come on over to our website at don'tstopusnow.co and sign up for our community with some awesome things planned for this year. Now for this week's episode. On the show this week is Mari Johnson, an Australian entrepreneur with a passion for AI. Mari's cutting-edge work today is all the more incredible when you hear her story. It certainly is. Like, it's an amazing story. It sure is. She was married as a teenager, then soon found herself pregnant and living in a caravan. Despite not having the chance to take her studies further immediately after school, Mari went on to juggle motherhood and study and earned several degrees. One thing led to another, as they say, and Mari took on CIO and other senior technology roles, particularly in government. And in 2006, she was named Innovative CIO of the Year for Australia. Mari now leads the Centre for Digital Business. It's a company she co-founded with her husband, Yet the same one she married all those years ago. She's a truly passionate believer in finding ways to use technology, including AI, to make life more equal and fair for everyone. In this episode, you'll hear why you should have a long and a short game plan, what it's like as an older woman in technology, how she copes with adversity, how she's co-designed a digital human, Nadia, with the disabled community, and how her husband's four heart operations and her grandsons are shaping what Murray is working on now. We spoke to Murray in Australia's capital, Canberra, her hometown. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the forward-thinking Murray Johnson. Murray Johnson, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you both very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We're really excited about this conversation. You've had such an interesting life and a distinguished career in the technology sector that we're definitely going to delve into as we go through this interview. You now own a company called the Centre for Digital Business based here in Canberra, where we are today. And you've got this particular area of speciality, I believe, which is what you call the intersection of human experience and systems. Can you Give us a little bit of colour and help us and our listeners visualise what that really means. Well, that is a big question. (laughs) 
And the way I like to talk about it is we all know when we experience bad service or we all at times get frustrated with the technology. We might scream at our computer, for example. We all appreciate the wonderful technologies that we have, how amazing Apple is, the Apple products and how intuitive they are. And you give an iPad to a child and the child intuitively knows its way around. That is my, if you like, description of what the human experience is at both ends, you know, the good and the bad, and what it takes to get to that great experience is different to just a normal IT function. It actually requires understanding the psychology between a person and their environment to actually do that. And so through my journey in my career, I have seen and experienced and uh, here and there probably been responsible for things that have not gone so well on the human experience and have definitely learned a lot about that. And so I believe that this is a particular issue in the era of AI, which my company is an AI and digital services company, to bring that to the fore. Before we go anywhere near the technology, I'd really love to sort of spend a bit of time understanding you and how you got here. So how have your life experiences taken you down the road to doing what you're doing today? It's often described as a bit of either a winding path or have come from, you know, some people might say at the wrong side of town, a career that actually didn't start as a career, right? It was just life. That actually was a lesson right from the beginning in not only not taking no for an answer, but questioning often the rules of society, which can limit people. And so where I started out was... um, I was married as a teenager. I had kids not too long after in the western suburbs of Sydney. My husband, who is still my husband, so some 40 years later, we met at school. He went on to Duxie's engineering course and we had a baby and we're living in a caravan in the western suburbs of Sydney. Can you remember when you were in that caravan with a young baby, what kind of vision or goal or picture did you paint about what your future life would look like? I have vivid memories of helping my husband with his engineering assignments. I did the equivalent of first class or first level mathematics at school. So I did all math science at school. And so when I say I helped him with his engineering subjects, I probably typed them up, (laughs) you know, but we were in this journey together. It was always this amazing interest in what I saw as understanding what engineering is. And in that caravan that we had those conversations, you know, how different engineering and science concepts applied to a passion that I still have, which is space and NASA and so forth. What a story. And I can just see you there now. What I'm intrigued about is, you know, what moment in your childhood Did science and maths and engineering and space come to the forefront? So the 1960s was a very, very interesting um, decade, 60s and 70s, you know, to be a a kid. The movie world, we, we actually didn't see movies because, you know, couldn't afford it, right? But on the television, I mean, you had Star Trek and all these amazing, amazing shows, which are just brilliant. But we had the space program, you know, and Australia was really involved in that. As a, I think, a 10 or 11-year-old, I wrote to Neil Armstrong asking for a few things, you know, a signed autograph and any material that he could send. 
And when I didn't get a reply, after a few months, I wrote again and said um, that I was still hoping to get a reply. And I got a reply and I got an apology that it had taken so long. And those artifacts, the photos with the text signature, I have mounted in my office behind protective glass. Wow. I was about five, I think, when the, the lunar Apollo 11 landing happened. And I think we're coming up in 2019 for the 100th anniversary. Oh, fi- that- 50 years? 50, 50 years. years. 100. <laughs> no, no. 100 <laughs> okay, is very old. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. <laughs> 50 years since the landing next year. Yeah. Amazing. It's very powerful, that that experience. I, I was getting tears in my eyes because it is such a uh, visceral thing for me as well. And Claire will know that I'm passionate about space stuff and NASA stuff. And I keep, I've shown her on multiple times, my Apollo 11 moon landing scrapbook, which is in mint condition from all the newspaper articles at that time that I still have to this day and love and treasure. How amazing to have that. Yeah. How amazing. Isn't it? And and isn't it wonderful, you know, those things in your childhood that really inspire you and literally change the way your life unfolds? Change the way you think. Absolutely. Right? To me, it was something that galvanized an imagination. Didn't matter where in the world you lived, it galvanized an an imagination from young people. And that was probably where it started. And it's been, I have watched and studied NASA formally uh, now in, you know, various degrees that I've done uh, in the decades since. Having come from that history of being already a mum, sitting in the caravan, co-learning an engineering degree course that your husband was studying, so what did you choose and how did that come about? Again, it was all decided on pragmatics and what was available. And I just knew that the journey would be worthwhile regardless of where it led. So I started a Bachelor of Arts degree through Deakin University and back then it was called distance education. It took some six or seven years to complete. I just did whatever a course fitted in where we were. But I did some interesting things like military and strategic studies, which was really quite fascinating. Philosophy and politics, that really just opened my mind up to history, really, in, a, in quite a different way. So when I finished the Bachelor of Arts, by that time we were in Melbourne. I had decided to continue my studies and started a a law degree. So I was about halfway through a law degree and working at the National Crime Authority, heading up an intelligence function for an organised crime task force. (laughs) Wow, fascinating. And so what that involved was real-time operational work, a lot of information coming in, the systems. And what I saw was the power of information and decision-making on operational outcomes and so forth, and how the technology at the time probably limited analysis to a degree. That then just even opened up my interest in this space even further. So I took the really hard decision to not continue the law degree and commenced my MBA at Melbourne. And that's really where things accelerated in terms of having this real hands-on experience and brought that into the MBA that I was doing. After your master's, you went into government, I believe, into technology roles, managing technology. How was it being a woman in that environment? From a personal perspective, I've always been aware that that is a gender imbalance. And even at the time, there was an age imbalance. And I would get asked questions about my age, 
And I mean, even now, all those years later, if they ask those questions, you know, I mean, what do I say? <laughs> As in you were older than most people? Yes, even at the time. It's a very difficult question to answer how I did that at the time because part of the fire in my belly was knowing that I had young daughters going through school. I had to make sure I succeeded in everything that I did to pay off my MBA program because I didn't get a loan for that and I just had to pay for that myself. I still had, you know, the girls' um, education and everything. So I was just absolutely so focused on everything that I did that these perspectives that people often often brought in, I just absolutely totally ignored and just, just got on with it. So, and I know that not everybody is able to do that. Often these attitudes actually do discriminate, but I just wanted to make sure that everything I touched, I did my 100% best and I didn't let anybody put me off course. What did you say to yourself in your head? Do you remember? At times it was personally quite difficult and I just used to remind myself that I was probably smarter than a lot of these people. But if I succeed and if I have the evidence to continue going forward, then the outcomes would speak for themselves. And that's that's what happened. I mean, there was so much of it, you just had to keep going. And my own mother uh, was one of five kids. Her call to us all was, there's no such thing as can't. You just ignore the naysayers because they will always be there. Don't let them affect you. Yeah. What's been the most rewarding thing about working in technology and government over the period? The way I look at uh, government, it is part of the system of society, regardless of what politics you have, an efficient and effective and a compassionate government is necessary for, for society. And to have a small part in that is incredibly, it's not only rewarding, but it's very fulfilling. And we always have to pass the baton to whoever comes after us. And I think it's our duty to prepare people who we're working with who will eventually step into the work that we do and to pass the baton and to have a role in something that is bigger than you, but you've done a part of making a huge difference to people's lives. Even battling the system inside is, I think, a duty that you have to, you have to have. And not too many people, I believe, feel comfortable to battle the system from the inside or even from the outside. What were your secrets to surviving and thriving or surviving and succeeding in that environment? I've always believed in self-development for a start, knowing that you might have to have a long plan, like a short-term plan, a longer-term plan, you know, a short plan, a long play. And psychologically, I think that really helps. You feel as though you can manage the short term, but you know that there's something that you personally are investing in that nobody can take that away from you. And so what I've always done is either formally through education, uh, look for interesting things, you know, which I thought would build skills and expand the network. And I have always done that. And in addition to that, just read, read extensively, speak to other interesting folks such as yourselves, and that, that helps build your depth as well as the skills that you have. And so I think part of surviving within a major corporation or government agency is to have your own plan, a short-term and a long-term plan. And certainly organisations may make decisions about your career that might affect where you go. But if you have this approach, I believe it does 
build resilience into your own career planning. Speaking of that and other roles and possibly serendipity, you actually, as I understand, were handpicked by Microsoft in the mid-2000s to head up their global e-government and public services division, I guess, in Seattle. So how did that come about and what was that like? So that was that was phenomenal. So I was working in, in government together with my team. We had delivered a whole range of things. Um, and a lot of that involved really close engagement with Microsoft. They asked me, would I be interested in joining them to, you know, head up this team because they thought having a person who's walked the talk would be incredibly important for their global business. And so, but that mean, you know, leaving government, moving to Seattle, changing your life that way. And it was just such a great opportunity. That's exactly what we did. Just absolutely phenomenal. So again, that was serendipity, wasn't definitely on the plan, but it, it was such an incredible experience to see how a major corporation like that operates and the perspectives globally, you know, what's happening, you know, in different, different economies and how technology can change that. And both from a humanitarian perspective, as well as from the perspective of government operations. And I imagine that was an, a unique position. And I'm really curious because you had that perspective then, and I know you travel immensely now as well. You know, which country do you think is really leading the way when it comes to e-services as a government for its society and things like that? That's a really, really great question. And one of the things that I think in Australia and elsewhere, we tend to maybe have a little bit of a blinkered view. So we compare ourselves with the UK, we compare ourselves with New Zealand or Canada and so forth. But Australia is a patchwork, if you like, and there's parts of our country that aren't too dissimilar to parts of Africa. And there's parts of Africa that have done amazing things, such as early innovations in payments MPSA, for example, how, how do you enable, you know, a society to be able to buy and exchange payments when many of them are unbanked? And so this was a phenomenal innovation. And so I think there's various dimensions that we need to look at. But New Zealand's doing some incredible things. Um, I think maybe just because of the, the nature of its culture there and China is, I think, really doing some very, very interesting things now in AI. And I think that'll bring about a very significant change. Murray, you've worked on an amazing innovation, which is a digital assistant called Nadia, who works delivering customer service to people with disabilities. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and and what Nadia actually does? Nadia was a, a project of the National Disability Insurance Scheme here in Australia. The challenge was to co-design with people with disability to understand their needs and situations. We knew that, you know, the traditional model of service delivery doesn't work in the way it should at all, and particularly for people with disability. And so what this was about was understanding the range of needs of people with disability. And the only way we could do that was through a really deep, intensive co-design effort. So Nadia is a digital human, an avatar, co-designed with people with disability. All aspects of Nadia came from the needs of people with disability, what what they wanted. And so what it is, it's a co-designed, intelligent, digital being with a co-designed personality a defined role and a deep body of knowledge about all the questions that people ask 
about the NDIS. And so for our international listeners, that's sort of a national scheme for financial support and other support in particular for people living with disabilities. So is Nadia about navigating the system? Yes. So the initial use case is all the questions that people ask. So this is a new scheme, a new program. And so people have lots of questions about what it means for them, etc. But also people will ask these questions in many, many different forms, not only because of their own needs and disabilities, but because of their own circumstances. They don't ask these questions in government speak. So the idea was to have this um, empathetic interface called Nadia available so people could ask it questions at any time and get very simple, straightforward answers in a way that really helped people navigate the system. And is Nadia live now? So we delivered Nadia to the Australian government a couple of years ago, ready for her implementation, ready for the phase which was called the traineeship. The government has, um, if you like, taken a longer-term view and it's not yet operational. That's where it is. People are very much looking forward to when it's going to be made operational. The government's just taking a little bit of extra time before it actually gets operationalised. That must be frustrating. I think it's frustrating for the community. You know, as one of the creators of it, you get very connected because you know so much about it. My long-term view on this was if Nadia was, you know, going to take a bit more time, the government's a bit more time, then the idea about having this um, human embodied interface with an AI platform would apply in many other contexts. And that's what's happened. And so this is now being picked up, obviously, with different face in a whole range of areas around, around the world. Looking more to the future now, I think you're really an inspiration, certainly for me personally, because if I understand it correctly, like myself, you're not a technology native from the point of view of coding and that traditional definition we have. And yet you're at the forefront of AI and helping shape that future. How does that work? The question I always bring to these type of challenges is what does it mean for the person? Whether it's a person interacting with, you know, a government system, a person interacting with the health environment, you know, a student in school, a new visa applicant to come into the country. No amount of system adequately addresses that human experience. And that's what you're bringing? That's right. That's right. What would be your advice to people in their early or mid stages of their careers today as to how they can ensure that they have a role that they find fulfilling in the future, given the changes that we're likely to see thanks to a whole host of things, including automation? I always say stay stay positive. There will be many, many naysayers, you know, doomsday type of people, and uh, everybody be without a job. Jobs will change. You know, there will be different roles that will, that will change. But we're architects of that. And I think younger people coming through need to build a resilience into their outlook on the future. And I think the amount of resources that we have to be able to do that, but to connect to other people, you know, to connect to people that have sort of at the other end of their career, you know, like me or others, go outside your usual network and, and just sit and observe other things as well. Murray, I want to come back to resilience because, you know, you've had a fair bit of adversity thrown at you in your life. 
just for our, our listeners, you've got a daughter and your two grandsons who have disabilities. As I understand it, your husband in the last 12 years have, has had four heart attacks. Is that correct? Uh, four heart surgeries, that's right. Four heart surgeries. Yeah. So that is a lot of adversity to come at one person. Mm. So how have you dealt with that? So the way I have approached life in general has been in compartments. That helps you manage what you have in front of you. And you never know what's to come and there's always both ups and downs to come. But I've always compartmentalised and that's the advice I give my daughters, you know, in whatever they're doing. Deal with today in a way that you can, you know, if you don't get to things today, you may or may not need to get to it tomorrow. And, you know, the same with my husband, etc. You can't look down the pipeline of um, all the potential horrible things that might happen because you're just bringing forward suffering that may never actually occur. And so compartmentalise as much as you can. And when you say compartmentalise, what do you mean practically? If you have things you're dealing with either at work or, or, or with your families, it's difficult to say don't bring it to work. But if you can say I'm not going to bring that to work and I'm going to have have this meeting, I'm going to do my work today and I will deal with that when I get back home. It is having a certain amount of a discipline in that, but it also means that you can be more effective in your job and also I think, more resilient in your personal life. What about resilience in a different way where, you know, we all have setbacks with projects we're working on or or something that disappoints us. How do you, you know, I don't know if you have an inner voice, but how do you sort of talk to yourself to bring yourself back into a positive mind frame? So I have this approach of, you know, the long game and the short game. And really I, I use that a lot in my own thinking. So with Nadia, for example, yes, we were sort of wanting that to be implemented, you know, and the fact that the government, um, you know, has taken more time, you know, has been a great frustration for everybody. And so I looked at that in terms of the long game and the short game to say, well, it would have been great for that to have been tended to in the short game. The long game was um, this was not going to be the end. There'd be other instances of, of this. And so that then, if you like, for the whole team actually, caused us to look at it a bit, a bit differently and not to be disappointed, but quite the reverse, to say this is actually leading to some pretty good things. So you can reframe the question or reframe the challenge you've got. So my long game, my short game. And looking to the, the future, what are you working on? So I just think this whole space is absolutely phenomenal for the opportunities that it presents. I'm focusing now on AI and digital humans in humanitarian areas. And the two I'm focusing on, well, Nadia was actually a humanitarian instance because it's so desperately needed. And I actually think that you can have really significant impacts in areas, what I call humanitarian. One that is um, reasonably well underway is a digital human cardiac coach. And so this addresses the need for people to have heart health information available at any time through conversations, not just for six weeks in in a rehab situation. And so there's a lot of interest in this from a a number of areas around the world. Close to home, I've got my use case, I've got my (laughs) co-design person there to help with all of that. And we've connected with the Heart Foundation and, you know, others around. So that's one. And the second one is both of these are big, so... We're incubating them and then our objective is to get funding and to push them out. A digital human reading coach. 
And again, a bit close to our hearts, uh, our two grandsons have dyslexia and a different type of disabilities, a hearing disability. And so their reading coaches had to travel from Sydney to Canberra because the market here, I mean, it's just such a demand. And so for the kids, for the young learners, to be able to interact at any time, you know, that practice like playing the piano is really, really important. But at the moment, it's limited by the availability of the human reading coach. And so the same type of uh, scenario to be able to have a digital human, the young learner to be able to interact with, and from that is really amazing data analytics that come from that. What areas every day does the child have difficulty with? What are the sounds and the words and so forth? You know, a level of insight that not previously possible. So we're doing some early work with some education specialists in the US on this. And that way that can be a service that really scales the expertise of the human reading coach, but able to reach so many more people in need. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Murray, you've been so generous to us with your time. Thank you for that. If our listeners are interested in the work you're doing and particularly the future work on the cardiac health coach and the digital reading coach, but you know, how can they generally find out more about your work and what you're doing? Uh, through social media, so we'll have information on our website, which is www.centre-for-digital-business.com. And we'll put it on our show notes Centre on the Centre for Digital Business, LinkedIn and Twitter, quite active there, you know, profile the work that we're continuing to do. So that's that's the platform that I use. Well, thank you, Mari. I'm sure many of our listeners will be intrigued to learn more. And from this real human and Claire sitting next to me, another real human, to you, a real human, thanks so much for your time today and for exposing the world of digital humans and the importance of AI going forward. Great. Wonderful to be here. Three humans together. (laughs) Thanks so much. Gosh, what an incredible journey Mari's been on. You can really feel the enormous strength and determination she has, can't you? Oh, yeah. It's absolutely incredible what she's achieved. And I just can't imagine how hard it's been with all the various adversities that Mari's encountered. But you've got to think that her mindset has been a huge part of her success. Absolutely. It's really admirable. And I think it's it's actually a real theme for me this year because just so increasingly realize how fundamental mindset is for everything and everyone. The thought that she funneled her kind of amazing and sometimes very challenging experiences into using technology to help others, I really find that very inspiring. And what an achievement to build a digital human. Listeners, do take a look at the video of Nadia, the digital human. It's really cutting edge. We'll link to it on our webpage for this episode. Great. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Watch out for our next episode in two weeks' time with Kat Dunn, the 35-year-old CEO of the Grameen Bank in Australia. Hear how she dealt with her fear of failure head on. Can't wait. See you then. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.